Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. My guest today is Megan Day. Megan is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Fox, Mother Jones, The Week, The Baffler, In These Times, and Plus One, and elsewhere. Her nonfiction book, Maximum Sunlight, was excerpted in the Best American Non-Required Reading 2017. She has co-authored a book with Micah Utrecht called Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. Look for it in late April. Today, we make the case for Bernie Sanders, why he is the most electable candidate and the one we should be most excited about. We dig into the data and the theory behind why a Bernie nomination would likely lead to a Bernie presidency. We also discuss why the case for Joe Biden's electability falls apart and discuss some of the strongest arguments against Bernie. We spend the first 13 or so minutes discussing the allegation that Bernie told Elizabeth Warren that a woman couldn't win the presidency. If you're familiar with this dispute, feel free to skip ahead. If this episode inspires you, you can get involved by visiting berniesanders.com forward slash volunteer. Of course, you can also make a donation at berniesanders.com. There's also the Burn app, which helps you build grassroots support among your friends and family. Find the app at app.berniesanders.com. We're entering the most critical period of the Democratic primary. The winner of the Iowa caucus on February 3rd is likely to become the Democratic nominee. So if you've been sitting on the sidelines, now is the best time to get involved. Here is Megan Day. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I guess we'll just start off with the recent kerfuffle um, over Warren claiming or through her people claiming that Bernie told her that a woman could not win the presidency back in 2018. Uh, For somebody who's like maybe had their head under a rock, what's the story here? The story here is that it was leaked to CNN by somebody, and we don't know who, that Bernie Sanders had said to Elizabeth Warren in a private meeting in 2018, when they were both senators and they were both considering running for president, and they met to discuss this, um, that that he had told her that either that he felt that a woman could not beat Donald Trump in 2020, or that a woman can't be president at all. And presumably, um, the people who told CNN that they had heard this had heard it directly from Elizabeth Warren. Um, It was said that they had heard it shortly after that meeting concluded. So she came away with some impression of the meeting, uh, told some people about it, a game of telephone ensued. And then over a year later, it was printed in CNN on the eve of the final debate before voting began in Iowa, that Bernie Sanders had said that a woman couldn't be president or couldn't beat Donald Trump. It was always very vague. You know, what was the actual claim being made? Um, He responded immediately. He responded in the CNN story in in a response the reporter saying, you know, I didn't say anything like that. Uh, You know, the topic came up about, you know, Donald Trump uh, weaponizing gender and race and other things like that. And I said that he most certainly would. And that's pretty much where I left it. Um, So there was a big outcry about the idea that Bernie Sanders was a sexist. Elizabeth Warren herself did not say that, but obviously there are a lot of people who have been kind of chomping at the bit to decry Bernie Sanders as sexist since 2016 when he ran against Hillary Clinton in the the Democratic Party primary. And that seemed to be a very effective cudgel against him. So people who don't like him have pre-existing sort of political objections to him and to his 
presence in uh, political campaigns, continued presidential campaigns. Um, this is one of their favorite lines of attack, and it seemed like a good opportunity to, to um, return to it. And you could see some of the old actors uh, getting excited about it. Uh, the real problem here is that for her part, Elizabeth Warren had an opportunity to sort of de-escalate um, and chose not to take it. And by that, what I mean is that she could have put out a statement saying what she rem remembered him saying so that we could, you know, look at it and decide whether or not it was sexist, for example. Um, and or she could have put out a statement saying, look, this is obviously ginned up by CNN, who's hosting the debate and it's all for clicks and it's very divisive and I don't want any part of it. That was a private conversation and I don't want to talk about it. She didn't do either of those things. Instead, she issued a statement that contained a very curt line about how uh, the topic came up about whether or not a woman could win. And uh, Bernie Sanders said that a woman could not and that she herself disagreed with that. Of course, extremely open to interpretation, right? It kind of, it escalated rather than de-escalated things because the conversation continued to happen. Okay, Bernie Sanders doesn't think women can be president was a thing that people were saying quite often. Um, and this really came to a head in the debate itself. Of course, CNN had broken the original story. So we knew that CNN was going to ask about it. They'd, they'd been hyping it all day long, actually. Um, and, and in part, one has to suspect that they were hoping that a few more people would tune into the debate, uh, hoping to see fireworks fly, right? And so they delivered and they asked the question at the debate. Um, first, they asked Bernie Sanders, you know, to defend himself from the allegations that he had said uh, sexistly to Elizabeth Warren that a woman could, could not win the presidency. Again, whether in 2020 or in general was unclear. You know, he said exactly the same thing that he had said in his original statement. And then, uh, if you watched, you'll know what I'm talking about. The mod This was an astonishing moment. I think everybody's jaw was on the floor after this. After he said that, after he denied having said anything sexist to Elizabeth Warren, the moderator then turned to Elizabeth Warren and asked something to the effect of, Elizabeth Warren, how did it make you feel when Bernie Sanders told you that a woman couldn't beat Donald Trump? Yeah. <laughs> And the problem was, again, she had an opportunity to think quick on her feet um, and come up with some phrasing that would be slightly exonerating to Bernie Sanders and frankly, a little more plausible. And instead, she chose to dig her heels in and said, I disagreed when he told me that. And then what I thought was... Um, really kind of beyond the pale is that she pivoted to then she said, look, I don't want to talk about what happened in the meeting, right? But now that the question has been raised about whether or not a woman can be president, I'm here to tell you that in fact, a woman can be president. And again, this created the impression that they were having a debate about whether or not a woman could be president. And in fact, afterwards, you saw the New York Times within an hour ran a, ran a story that I saw before they changed it, they got some pushback and they changed the wording. But the wording said that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the debate stage had engaged in a continued debate over whether or not a woman can be president. And you saw that in several different mainstream news outlets. And it was really spreading the impression that Bernie Sanders had actually made a documented, verifiable comment to the effect that a woman can't be president. Uh, certainly, that's not true. There's just no, this strains credulity. There's no possible way he's ever said anything like that. Um, we have him on video from... Uh, late 1980s saying emphatically that a woman can and should be president. 
Um, the other, the other one, the sort of like, maybe he said that a woman, he said decisively that a woman can't beat Donald Trump. I also find that that is just seems highly unlikely. I mean, I paid very close attention to Bernie Sanders. So, um, I, I know what seems within the realm of possibility as something that he might say. And this one seems highly unlikely because, uh, as he said himself, he acknowledges that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote against Donald Trump. And his explanation for why she lost the electoral college against Donald Trump is actually not her gender. And in fact, he's gotten in trouble for it not being her gender, the way that he explains it. Does that make sense? People have been angry at at Bernie Sanders in recent history for explaining Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump by talking about poor campaigning, an uninspiring message, and so on and so forth. and in fact, people close to Hillary Clinton in her in her sort of inner circle have written op-eds saying Hillary Clinton decisively lost to Donald Trump for one reason and one reason alone, and that is sexism. Or they'll add an addendum and say, and Russia, and Bernie Sanders, right? Um, and Bernie's explanation is actually entirely different. So I don't think that he thinks that, and I don't think that he would have said that. And another clue that we have that he didn't say something like that is that after the meeting, the New York Times reported on the meeting and both of the now candidates confirmed to the New York Times that neither of them had said anything to discourage the other one from running. So presumably that would have been the effect of saying something like that, right? Um, Now you could say, okay, well, Elizabeth Warren, he did say something to discourage her from running, but she decided to keep it close to her chest. She didn't feel like sharing it with the New York Times at that moment. Fine. But is it really that noble to hold it close to your chest until the 11th hour and then use it to try to discredit your political opponent who's been rising in the polls when you've been sinking in the polls? I don't think that that's necessarily a, a, a situation or a series of events that reflects better on Elizabeth Warren, right? Yeah. So, um, so overall, I've found I found the whole thing very discouraging. My respect for Elizabeth Warren, frankly, um, uh, it it kind of eroded even further than it had already um, because of this episode, and and just the way that people sort of weaponized. Uh, the discourse of feminism and including the discourse around me too. And, and uh, people, you know, the survivors of sexual assault, believing women and so on and so forth in order to say that you can't argue with Elizabeth Warren's version of events um, because one must believe women at all times. And I, I, I found it frankly, pretty disgusting politicking. So that's my cap, uh, uh, capsule history of the recent kerfuffle. Does that suffice? Yeah, no, that, that was really, really great. Um, I think that was like a very fair representation of what happened. I was kind of curious to see how the kind of like center left or like more liberal establishment was taking it. So I listened to like the Pod Save America episode on it. And one of the arguments that I heard there and had seen elsewhere and like the Warren subreddit is like, why would she possibly raise this question? Because it's only going to hurt her. And this is like a Rebecca Tracer piece was to that effect. And I guess like it's possible that her people who, I mean, clearly people who heard about this meeting were close to her, right? And it's possible that they went rogue. And in response to like the most mild criticism from the Bernie campaign, uh, they were like, okay, we have to talk about this now. Um, But as you said, even if that was a rogue group of operators, Warren could have de-escalated many different points. And she did say, I want to de-escalate, but she affirmed the claim itself, which is very, very clearly... uh, fiery and and gets people going. I think that's right. I mean, so I don't know for certain that Elizabeth Warren greenlit the whole thing, right? In fact, I don't know. It seems it seems like equally plausible to me that she did versus that she didn't, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to leave that in in like 
uh, undetermined for now. But CNN called her campaign. They called Bernie Sanders and they called Elizabeth Warren. And Bernie Sanders went on the record and said, this absolutely did not happen in the way that it's being presented. Here's what I recall us discussing, um, et cetera. And Elizabeth Warren had an opportunity in that moment. I mean, you have to think quick on your feet in that moment. If what you're hearing from the pro-Warren circles right now is that she could never have done this. This wasn't her because she doesn't want this to dominate the news cycle. The truth of the matter is that if she didn't want it to dominate the news cycle, she would have said to the CNN reporters, the sources that you have been talking to are misrepresenting what I said. And so don't run with the story. Yeah. The end. Yeah. Like, she could I'm totally not, have spiked the yeah. story, right? Like yeah, it's within her it. power. Done. She could have spiked it immediately. Instead, she must, she absolutely must have thought to herself, if she didn't plant it herself, she must have thought to herself, well, I don't know how this is going to play, but maybe we'll just see how it goes. Yeah. Maybe yeah. we'll just let it go out there and see how it goes and we'll just respond as it comes. And then you know what? It, it, it kind of reflected pretty poorly on her. I mean, the truth of the matter is that I don't think that I don't think that this actually did work out very well for her at the end of the day, because I think it was pretty implausible, frankly. And I think that, um, you know, Bernie Sanders has been in the public eye for, I mean, despite the attempts to remove him from the public eye, you know, the sort of Bernie, Bernie media blackout and so on. But for the most, he's been around uh, as a popular media figure for four or five years at this point. So people are pretty familiar with him and the kinds of things that he says. And this just doesn't sound like anything that Bernie said. And in fact, it's directly contradicted by many of the things that Bernie said. And so I think people saw it as some kind of politicking and some kind of maneuvering, even if people wanted to bicker over the details of what kind of politicking and maneuvering was going on, instead of perhaps what Elizabeth Warren might have hoped people would see it as, which was just a pretext to discuss the necessity of having a woman president and give her an opportunity to have her her big debate moment with her applause line and so on. And you know what? She got that debate moment and she got that applause line. But I think for a lot of people, they could see that it was at the expense of Bernie Sanders kind of shadow boxing with a fictitious version of Bernie who doesn't believe that women can be president. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like one other thing to note is that Warren's campaign was kind of floundering uh, leading up to this event. And she was never first in Iowa in, in any of the polls. And like, it's possible that there were kind of desperate. And, you know, I don't want to speculate too much because as you say, we don't know for sure, but she at least leaned into it. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, if people are, have been following this, they're probably sick of hearing about it. Uh, so let's move on into the affirmative case for Bernie. And I think let's start with probably the most important one, which is his electability. Uh, so there's this conventional wisdom that like, you know, Bernie's Bernie's great, but like if we really want to beat Trump, Joe Biden does the best in head-to-head polls and is like the most tested and has the association with Obama and the strongest black support. So we should really go with him. So what's the problem with that argument? Well, first of all, I don't think that we're seeing as much of Joe Biden on television as we're going to see in general election. That's going to dominate the news cycle and both candidates are going to be in our face every single day. And frankly, I think that a lot of people who support Joe Biden at the moment are low information voters who are responding positively to a still image of his face. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. They're like, I, re- I recognize that face from photographs with Barack Obama, mm-hmm. a president that I remember and like from the time before Trump. It's the like Parks and that- Rec version of politics where it's just yeah. Like the photo on the wall. Of the yeah, heroes. exactly. <laughs> he is a nightmare. I mean, I don't know if you saw the video that came out today of him just like exploding at a reporter who asked him why he had gone negative against Bernie. And this comes out literally 24 hours after a video that I saw of him exploding at a constituent who had asked him a challenging question. And that's not even the first 
the first video I've seen of him being extraordinarily aggressive with a voter, right? Who had asked him it's a tough a question. Look. He has a bad temperament. I don't think people realize this. I mean, he babbles incoherently and he trails off and tells folksy stories. And just like, I mean, he basically mixes and matches idioms to try to get himself through questions that he's completely lost. He He's forgotten what question he's been asked and he just starts to do like idiom mashups to move from one topic to the other hoping that he lands safely on the other side i mean i'm surprised that anybody can come away from watching the democratic party debates and still think that joe biden would be viable against donald trump but in addition in addition to that which maybe i'm overstating it a little bit but also like i really just don't think that he has like he's not very mentally sharp and he's not good at answering difficult questions in addition to that he's going to be more difficult questions are going to be put to him in the general than the ones that are currently being put to him in the primary. So for example, Bernie Sanders's campaign got in trouble for insinuating that Joe Biden has a potential corruption problem. And then Bernie Sanders ended up sort of apologizing to Joe Biden. It turned out that that apology seemed to be a little bit of base covering because that just wasn't the fight they wanted to pick. And like literally later that evening, the Sanders campaign put out a negative ad um, going after Joe's record on social security. I don't think they had anything to apologize for. The truth of the matter is this is an electability issue. Joe Biden has multiple family members who on multiple occasions have cashed in on the Biden family name. And it would appear based on the patterning that Biden himself was not only aware of it, but that there was a sort of reciprocal relationship. So for example, you know, his son works as a consultant for a bank and then for like four years. And at the end of those four years, voila, Joe is in there, you know, advocating for a bill that would help that specific bank. I mean, there's, there's stuff like that. Uh, Politico has a really good investigative piece called Biden Inc., that's the best thing I think that you can read on this if you're curious. Um, we're not talking about it in the Democratic Party primary because there's some weird rule now that it's like below the belt to insinuate that Joe Biden is corrupt. And even Bernie Sanders walked up to the edge and then decided, look, I don't want to pick that fight right now. Donald Trump doesn't care what we consider below the belt, right? And in fact, Donald Trump will, you could say, oh, well, Donald Trump is so much more corrupt than Joe Biden, so it shouldn't matter, right? Well, no, that's precisely the problem. We need somebody to campaign against Donald Trump who can actually credibly make the case that Trump is extraordinarily corrupt, right? And Joe Biden is going, Trump's just going to respond to Biden by bringing up all this stuff with Hunter Biden and Ukraine and all the sort of like, uh, apparent cronyism with lobbyists on K Street. Um, we know that Trump will do that. In fact, Trump's acute interest in doing exactly that is literally the thing that catalyzed the chain of events that has led to the impeachment. We have evidence that that is what Donald Trump will use against Joe Biden. I think that we should be concerned about sending him up against Donald Trump. And furthermore, I think that the sort of civility, uh, quote unquote, civility uh, minded behavioral norms of the Democratic Party primary are preventing us from having a serious conversation about Joe Biden's many flaws. Yeah. So I wanted to put that out there first and say that since Joe Biden is the other front runner, I think that we should just pause and actually take stock of who this guy is and whether or not it's complete suicide to send him up against Donald Trump. I think it probably is. And yeah, yeah. on the other side, who do you have? You have Bernie Sanders. He is the most trusted candidate in the field. There have been polls in the past indicating that he's the most trusted politician in America, just like the person that people uh, rank as most honest or most trustworthy in polls. 
because he's consistent. He's been consistent for 40, 50 years. He says the same things over and over again to a fault. And people really, that his authenticity really, really shines and um, resonates with people. So he's the, he's the exact sort of opposite, the person who's going to be most capable of drawing a contrast with Donald Trump, just on the basis of their personal characteristics and their relation, their relationship to personal, um, uh, you know, self-enrichment, right? Um, I think Bernie Sanders, the strongest con- contrast is there among the two frontrunners. But then, of course, there's the political contrast as well. You hear from like the New York Times and various other, um, you know, centrist standard bearers that, well, Donald Trump likes to hold rallies and rile people up and his supporters are extremely passionate. And Bernie Sanders checks all those exact same boss- boxes, you know. Big rallies, people get riled up. Yeah, they <laughs> do the same thing. Supporters. This is the same thing. That I mean, they literally will tell you that right, right the, they being centrist establishment Democrats will tell you that that right wing populism and left wing populism are two things that are like two manifestations of the same phenomenon. When it's not true at all, it's it's actually those are it's op- operating on completely different sides of the spectrum. It's just that both of them are intelligent enough to know that you should probably bring millions of people into the political process if you want to knock it out of the goddamn park. Yeah. Like that's just that's just ridiculous for the comparisons. So I actually think that we should be thinking about who do we want to send up against a right wing populist with a history of corruption, someone who lies a lot and and is extraordinarily untrustworthy. I think we want to send a um, quote unquote left wing populist, i.e. somebody who uh, excites people by the millions, is capable of generating energy uh, among ordinary Americans who has the exact opposite set of concerns. I mean, he wants to, you know, expand healthcare. He wants to, um, you know, like uh, expand education, fully funded public education, tuition-free college, cancellation of student debt, and so on. Um, you know, we're talking about a Green New Deal. These are the exact opposite of the things that Donald Trump has certainly done in his time as president. So I think, again, the contrast is going to be clear. And then to the final point, there's the the thing that I brought up earlier, the contrast on the question of trustworthiness and and who really at the end of the day, each of these candidates who are squaring off against each other, who they ultimately answer to and who they're actually trying to benefit at the end of the day. If you want to underscore that Donald Trump is there to benefit himself and his class peers, the other plutocrats like him who stand to gain from his you know massive tax cuts for the wealthy and so on, then you're going to want somebody who it's quite obvious that they are the opposite. And that would be Bernie Sanders, who has fought for justice and equality his entire life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. And I think uh, your piece with Matt Karp, uh, why Bernie Sanders is a candidate who can beat Trump is is super compelling. And I've sent it to a lot of people. Um, so that's kind of like the theory of it. And like, what does the data say? You, you identify three key groups of voters um, or non-voters. And I think I have them here. The first is the Democrats independence who backed Obama twice before turning to Trump. The second being the Obama voters who didn't vote at all in 2016. And then the third, the largest group of all, the people who don't vote at all. So why are these people key? So the reason we want, one of the things we wanted to push back against is this idea, you hear it so often, that there's really like something known as a swing voter. And a swing voter. voter. My friend went as one for Halloween. (laughs) That's great. I love that. So like a a person with like a ballot in their hand on like a swing, because I feel like that's a cute pun. Yeah, he was like a white guy overalls with like an American flag shirt, backwards hat. That works too, yeah. Aviators. (laughs) 
the mythical swing voter. <laughs> exactly. So this is the idea is that like the swing voter is somebody who straddles the who always votes and who is so moderate that they literally just change their mind every single election between Democrats or Republicans based on who's giving them the most i mean democrats say this stuff and they got they've got to know it's not true yeah but who's they, they say you have to run to the center to appeal to these people who are so moderate that if you don't then they're going to go to the republicans mm -hmm. but that's that's not the constituency that we need to be fighting over just in terms of raw numbers you know i was on board for bernie sanders well before i ever sat down with matt carp and like crunched the numbers on this stuff my attraction to bernie sanders's campaign has to do with his theory of change and his ideology and his platform and his program they align with mine and my political values but then we started sitting down and looking at like okay what's it going to take to beat donald trump right and it just so happened, and I don't think it's a coincidence, actually, that the person who has the best shot electorally to beat Donald Trump happens to be the person who also has the most, I guess you would say, the most unique political perspective of any Democrat, or I would say, quote unquote, Democrat in his case, who's He's come not along. Even a Democrat. Not even a Democrat. People say that like it's like the worst possible indictment. And I'm like, God, I just I find that so, so flattering to him. Um, <laughs> So, so to go back to the question of what, what the actual numbers tell us. So we know that the people who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Donald Trump represented a pretty large constituency that was borderline decisive in 2016, right? Mm -hmm. We know that it was big enough to matter. And we know that in order to defeat Donald Trump this time, we're going to have to ask, why did those people cross over? Those people voted for Barack Obama twice, so I think that we can rule out the idea that they were solely driven by racial animus in their decision to, four years after they voted for Barack Obama, decided to vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. In fact, if you look at where these people are clustered, there are 206 counties that flip from Obama to Trump, and they're mostly concentrated in the Rust Belt and the deindustrialized Midwest in general. And these are places that have been screwed by trade deals that have allowed companies to outsource jobs overseas so that they're in search of, you know, ever cheaper profits. I mean, sorry, ever, ever cheaper labor and higher profits, leaving communities behind to wither and die with nothing besides broken promises from giant corporations. So when Donald Trump came around talking about NAFTA and bad trade deals and making America great again, that's what they heard. And these are people who had voted Democrat very recently. If Hillary Clinton had been representing herself as the change candidate, they very easily could have stayed in the you know vicinity of the Democratic Party. Um, but instead, Donald Trump said, make America great again. And Hillary Clinton literally responded, America is already great. Okay, yeah. so you just lost all of those people who are just voting because they want change. Mm -hmm. You've lost them immediately. Um, now, when you look at the numbers, you find that not only is Bernie Sanders knocking it out of the park in donations and other metrics of support in these 206 counties, but he's like got triple the donation numbers of everybody else. We're all clustered sort of down there together at the bottom in these places. He's doing he's performing better in these places than he is elsewhere across the country comparatively and you know he's outperforming all of his competitors and donations in general but actually you can see a spike in performance in these particular counties these obama trump counties mm -hmm. so if we think that that group of people is decisive we need to be looking at the signals that we're getting and you have to look for signals beyond 
polls because polls are sometimes don't capture all the people who you know don't pick up their phones or people who are not necessarily uh you know regular like uh regularly uh reliable voters right mm -hmm. so so that's the first one and the second one is uh, obama voters who just did not vote in 2016. they just were not inspired by what was on offer and in many cases, I would say that a lot of these people are actually demographically relatively similar to the people who went from Obama to Trump, except for the fact that they're probably more likely to not be white, which meant that they couldn't bring themselves to then vote for Donald Trump, but they also did not like Hillary Clinton, so they just stayed home. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in Michigan, you know, for example, you had, uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think it's I tens have of 70, thousands. Yeah, yeah. yeah 75,000 people cast ballots, but did not register a presidential preference. And there were 3 million eligible voters who didn't go to the polls in Michigan and Trump and, won and, by 10,000 yeah. votes. So Trump won by 10,000 votes in Michigan, but 75,000 people just went to the polls. They stood in line. This is not voter suppression. These yeah. people stood in line and they filled out ballots and they didn't put down a candidate preference for president. And in fact, uh, Pew Research Center has been doing polling for years on people who don't vote for president, asking them why. And they usually, you know, they get a response rate on the people answering, you know, I just didn't like the candidates usually hovers between like eight and 15%. And it yeah. jumps up to like, what does it say there? 25%. In the article? Like 25%. It just leaps right up to 25% in 2016. So we need to give these people somebody inspiring somebody who represents change to actually get them to cast a ballot for president against Donald Trump. If we don't do this, then Donald Trump's going to win. Yeah. It's just, it's very basic math. And so you have to ask yourself, like, who's going to ins inspire and excite them? Yeah. I don't think it's going to be Joe Biden. No. Um, one more stat here on the yeah. Obama voters who stayed home. Bernie's mm -hmm. favorability among this group is plus 38%. Um, Warren's is plus 16% and Joe Biden's is plus 35%. Right. Thank God we have people who are actually going out and like collecting this data. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is very telling. This is what I'm saying is like that. That would be my gut feeling anyway. I mean, it's just sort of it. And it would be the conclusion that I would come to after just like using my own sort of understanding and perspective politically and applying it to this situation. But I'm not at all surprised that the numbers bear it out. This group of people are people who typically are deeply alienated from politics and tend to think that all politicians are the same. And they got really excited by Barack Obama. And then they probably got really burned by Barack Obama. And it's going to be hard to get them out to vote for, you know, a Democrat, unless you're offering them something different from the usual establishment Democrat fair. Yeah. Yeah. And then this final group, the American non-voters, um, this, these people are disproportionately young, non-white and working class. So what does this mean for Bernie? Well, it turns out that Bernie Sanders is extraordinarily popular with young people who are not white, who are working class and with separate those groups separately with young people, with non-white people, especially young non-white people and with the working class in general. So, you know, that if you're looking at trying to bring out people who don't normally vote, I mean, just you should just ask what are the demographic, what's the demographic breakdown of that group of people mm -hmm. and what's the demographic breakdown so far of Bernie Sanders' support in the primary, bearing in mind that people who don't vote for president do not give a single rat's ass about the Democratic Party primary. They are not paying attention at all right now to what's happening in the Democratic Party primary. We're talking about sending someone up in a general election against Donald Trump who can capture their attention. And so we need to look at the stats in the Democratic Party primary to 
try to get a sense of how Bernie is appealing to people in certain demographic groups with the hopes that it'll actually grow exponentially in a general election. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think this is the, this is the most important group by a long shot in the United States. About 40% of people don't typically vote in presidential elections. We have dismal voter turnout. It's the results of, you know, decades of alienation from the political process. Um, And just like a pervasive sense that people have that the politicians are of both parties are relatively similar to each other and are bound by a desire to further their own career interests or to help their, you know, crony capitalist friends instead of helping ordinary working people. So why would I go vote? It's not going to change anything. Right. Um, what Bernie Sanders has made his entire campaign about is what is an intimate, what are the intimate problems that make it hard for you to survive and thrive as a working class person in the United States? You know, is it medical debt? Is it student debt? Is it low wages? You don't have enough time to see your kids because you have to work two jobs because your wages are too low. If so, speak that truth and hear everybody else speaking that truth and know that you are not alone. Right. Mm -hmm. These are actually social and political problems. These are not your own individual failings. That has been what his campaign has evolved into beautifully, I would say, over the last several months. And that is the kind of message that if it were broadcast to four or five times as many people as it would be in the general election, would have the potential not to turn out all 40 percent of people who don't vote. We're not going to overpromise here, but to turn out enough of them to actually change who votes in this country enough to kick Donald Trump's ass in a way that's like creative and as a kind of workaround, right? Because everybody's always fighting over percentages of people who they know are going to vote. But the real way to beat Donald Trump is to just turn out three or 5% more of the non-voters or hopefully, you know, 10% of the non-voters. That would be an incredible, incredible result, honestly. And in that case, you could really kick Donald Trump's ass, I think. So, so, that turning out non-voters is actually far more. What did somebody say? Um, God, I don't remember if it was Noam Chomsky or it was another an eminent thinker of our time who said that uh, the American non-voters are are um, the most important political party in the United States. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they have the potential to sway things. And, and there's right. political scientists who I think have looked at this question of like, why don't people vote? Um, or why do they vote against their own like class interests? And I think some have concluded that it's kind of this rational response to people just seeing that their uh, perspectives just don't really factor into politics. And there's a lot of research on how if rich people want something and poor people want something, it'll happen. If rich people want something and poor people don't, it's like much more likely to happen than not. And then if uh, poor people want something and rich people don't, it just won't happen. Um, And this is like, (laughs) makes sense if you look at, you know, how deferential candidates are to their fundraisers um, and just how much the, you know, wealthy people control the media and, and all kinds of other institutions in the United States. It makes sense. And like, if you're a poor person working class, like you look at this and you go like, what's in it for me? You know, what am I going to get out of this? And Bernie's offering something tangible and Obama kind of did this, but he was trying to make everything so like beneath the surface and you don't even have to think about what the government does for you that you have people like, this is not Obama, but keep your government hands off my Medicare. I think it's like important that you just make it clear you are getting something for your support. And some people might like think that's, you know, a banana republic type situation. Um, but I think it's really important that people understand that their political decisions can have consequences that benefit their own life. And only one person is really making that clear. 
I think that's right. And I think that not only is he making it clear that, you know, if you were to participate in the political process right now, you would improve your chances to actually win something that could transform your life. But he's actually making the corollary point very strongly as well, which is that if you don't, it will not happen. That is the point of not me us. It's like he's trying to expose the sort of um, mechanics of politics as especially as relates to the ruling class. Mm -hmm in this country. Um, and, you know, I hear a lot from centrists that, you know, that he's like over promising, he's promising the moon. And, you know, there's like, you're, everyone's going to get a free pony and like, it's all magical thinking and mm -hmm. stuff like that. I mean, this is, that's actually, to me, that is the, the most, this sort of like, uh, these are people who are posturing as the realists and pragmatists. Right. But how naive, right. How naive to not actually, be able to see that really, truly, the realm of possibility within the realm of possibility, Medicare for all is an obvious thing, right? Like they, there's universal health care in other countries, or single payer health care in other countries. Um, tuition free college again is something that you know our peer nations have been able to accomplish. These things are not outside of the realm of possibility, and in fact, we only win them if we fight for them because winning them involves undercutting the profits of very powerful people, i.e., capitalists. And capitalists are holding our government hostage. And they will continue to do so until you build an extra parliamentary force of ordinary people who are capable of exerting enough pressure on the state that they're compelling the state to actually bite the hand that feeds it. Yeah. To to work in different to work in a way that is against its nature, to actually buck the interests of the capitalist class that for the most part controls it. Bernie Sanders is not being naive. He actually just understands how our government works and he understands that if you want to win reforms that can transform the lives of working people at the expense of corporate profits, you do have to build a mass movement. And he's been attempting to do that with his campaigns and I would argue I have a front row seat to the whole process. And I would argue that it's uh, it's working. Will it work in overall in the long run? I can't say, but certainly something is happening that is completely unprecedented in American electoral history or political history in general. Yeah. And the theory you cite in the piece is that it's pretty simple, actually. There's like economic power, there's state power, and then there's social power, right? And right now, state power is subservient to economic power. You know, the Chamber of Commerce gets what it wants, right? And the only way to really break this deadlock is to have social power, which is like people in the streets, the kind of mass politics that Bernie Sanders is offering. Exactly. This, I think, was actually a, se a separate piece. And to be honest, I don't remember which one, but I'll tell you that it comes from that those three, those three terms come from a book written by the late Marxist sociologist uh, or Eric Olin Wright in his book is called How to Be an Anti-Capitalist in the 21st Century. Um, he's great at schematizing things like this. And that really clicked for me. It's like, okay, exactly as you said, and I'll, I'll, re I'll restate it so that your listeners can like let it sink in a little bit, which is that right now we have a state that is captured by the capitalist class. So that means that state power is currently subordinated to economic power. We want to use, we and progressives in general, I would say, want to use the state to discipline economic power. Unfortunately, the relationship is already cemented between the two. The state is subservient to economic power. So we're not going to be able to just win office and then implement rules and regulations and discipline economic power using state power alone, right? Mm -hmm. um, that would be, I would say, probably the Elizabeth Warren theory of change. Um, 
what Bernie Sanders' theory of change holds instead is that there's a third type of power besides state power and economic power, which is social power, which is the capacity to mobilize ordinary people into voluntary associations to do things using all at once to exert the power of their numbers um, on you know the world and produce and affect change. That's sort of the basic definition of social power. And if you were to harness enough of that social power, you would be able to add to the state power that you've just captured because you're just one president to actually tilt the balance of power such that you'd be able to discipline economic power, right? Mm -hmm. But without social power, no dice. You don't have it. You don't have the ability to discipline the thing that's disciplining you. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And I totally agree. I think like Elizabeth Warren with the right tools, like with the right um, political movement behind her could come up with some very effective ways to regulate, you know, finance, for example. Um, I think she's very competent in that role. But the whole theory of change just doesn't get you there, right? Like, it's not a lack of good rules that has gotten us to this position. It's the lack of the teeth behind those rules, more or less. Right. And I think one of the problems with Elizabeth Warren is that she, because she values her ability to negotiate, to be a savvy negotiator, she does not demonstrate a degree of, I guess you would say, like antagonism um, in in moments of consequence because she wants to keep her options open in case she needs to go back to a very powerful person who she might disagree with to be able to negotiate with them on X, Y, Z, right? So an example of this would be in 2016 when it was Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton running against each other for the primary, Elizabeth Warren had the opportunity to endorse Bernie Sanders, but instead she actually refused to endorse during the primary. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious why. Her politics are much closer to Bernie Sanders's than Hillary Clinton's. Certainly they were at that time. Um, And I think that she just didn't want, she thought maybe Hillary would win and she just didn't want to, you know, piss Hillary Clinton off because she has a higher, has a sort of sense of higher purpose, right? Or she feels that she does and she feels that she might need to work with somebody like Hillary Clinton in order to implement the regulations there and the rules that she would like to implement in order to rein in economic power, right? Well, the problem with that is that you're cutting off your avenues to build social power if you don't validate for people the anger that they feel at the establishment. I mean, Hillary Clinton had become emblematic of the establishment that had been keeping down the working class in this country. She was right up there standing next to Bill Clinton when NAFTA was signed and when welfare was gutted. And when Bernie Sanders says we want a $15 minimum wage, she said, how about 12 So, you know, Elizabeth Warren refusing to endorse Bernie Sanders over uh, Hillary Clinton, what she it's kind of like you're demonstrating that you're not willing to validate people's righteous anger at the establishment. And that is a necessary component of building social power. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so just to close out the electability argument, I think we touched on this a little bit, but one of the really important things is that four times as many people more than that are going to vote in the general election over the primaries with like roughly the same multiple of money going into it. And we look at how Bernie's campaign shifted the landscape and of rhetoric and, and policies in the Democratic Party, uh, just the thought of what that could do to our politics if four times as many people are exposed to this argument that like, yes, we can ensure the fundamental dignity of every American, and yes, we can do it by breaking the tyrannical stranglehold on, of the billionaire class. Like That's very exciting to me. It is, and I think that we'll see two things get mainstreamed in the process. One is a, um, a short-term policy program that could re- reasonably be described as social democratic, which in the United States is completely unthinkable right now yeah. anyway. Um, 
And, you know, Bernie Sanders popularized Medicare for all to the point that Democrats now have to explain why they don't want Medicare for all and what they want instead that usually they have to like settle on a public option or something, which by the way, is something that the Democrats very purposefully jettisoned in the ACA negotiations. So Bernie Sanders has mainstreamed the idea of Medicare for all and actually by extension, the public option just by losing a primary, (laughs) a primary that a primary that people weren't paying attention to by and large in the United States, right? Um, When you compare that to a general election. So imagine what he could do with running against by running against Donald Trump in a general election. I mean, he could mainstream not only further mainstream Medicare for all, but, you know, the idea that uh, we should have tuition free public college, that if it's called a public good, if it's called public college, it ought to actually be for the people of this country and not just for the people of this country who are capable of paying Mm -hmm. or who are willing to take on loans that are going to limit their economic options for the rest of their life. I mean, he's going to mainstream the idea that your student debt is just illegitimate. It's just an illegitimate form of debt. It's like owing a debt. It's like a shopkeeper owing a debt to the mafia. We should just cancel it because it shouldn't exist. He's going to be up there saying stuff like this to hundreds of millions of people. I think that, you know, and then I'll talk about the Green New Deal. I mean, we're going to seriously see the mainstreaming of a certain, he has the most ambitious climate plan of anybody by a long shot. And the only one that takes the science seriously and that treats the situation with the gravity and the urgency that it requires. And if he runs against Donald Trump, he'll be mainstreaming that. And I trust him not to tack to the center against Donald Trump. Yeah. Unlike unlike every single other person in the race who I'm pretty sure is tacking left for the most part because they're worried about Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. I think that Bernie Sanders himself, he is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I don't think he's gonna, I don't think he's gonna tack to the center against Donald Trump. He's gonna go up there with those ambitious ideas and he's gonna make them thinkable and possible. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to say is that it's not just the policy program that I think he's going to mainstream and make thinkable. It's a certain way of thinking about what a society is for, right? A society exists and an economy in a society exists to meet people's needs, not the other way around. Like people exist to sort of keep the economy churning or like keep the the status quo of the society um, relatively stable. It's the other way around, which is that we should organize our institutions to inherently acknowledge and uphold the dignity and worth of every single person. And if they're not doing that, then they're broken and we should reverse engineer them until they do that, no matter what the cost to the wealthiest among us, no matter what the cost to corporations and so on. And If that gets mainstreamed, then I think that we're going to see the reintroduction of a set of values into our culture. I say reintroduction because there have been times in the past where at the very least a kind of social democratic orientation was more popular in the United States, for example, during the New Deal era. Mm -hmm. But perhaps this would be at an even larger scale. The idea that we should not see each other as obstacles to flourishing and individual success. We should see each other as partners in prosperity and that we should work together to build beautiful things that make all of our lives better, like a beautiful Medicare for all system and a beautiful public university system and so on and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the last thing I want to say on on the electability piece is you talk about how Bernie ran against a self-funded Republican in 2006 for the Senate. Uh, the last time that seat was up, the Republican incumbent won by 40 points. Uh, Bernie runs, just goes to town on this guy, this, you know, talking about him as like out of touch and trying to buy the election. And Bernie ends up winning by 33 points. And, mm-hmm. you know, Obama very effectively went after Romney uh, for being a corporate raider and, and an out of touch rich guy. And Trump is like that times a thousand. 
and Bernie has an even stronger contrast against him. And so I think like it'll be an incredible contrast. And you even talk about how they're born a few miles apart, completely different lives, completely different uh, focuses with their career and, and looking out for the little guy where Trump is screwing him over every step of the way. I mean, it's a story that's worth getting off your ass and going to the polls for, isn't it? Because yeah. like, it's something that really like hits you someplace deep. Like I, you know, we know that I'm not just making up that Bernie would say this. This is actually in his um, introductory speech when he launched his campaign in Brooklyn in March of last year. He said something to this effect about like Donald Trump and I were born roughly around the same time and not so far apart. But, you know, I grew up in a rent controlled apartment and he grew up in a mansion and his father gave him money to millions of dollars to, you know, open up casinos and um, and hotels and uh, a housing empire that he built by discriminating against people of color. Mm -hmm. And I earned a, you know, 25 cent a week allowance until it was time for me to go to college where I fought against housing discrimination in Chicago. Right. And then the most beautiful line, the one that I loved the most is that Donald Trump got famous telling people you're fired. I grew up in a house in a community where we understood the incredible power that employers have over their employees. That gives me chills. Can you imagine him saying that to hundreds of millions of people? Can you imagine how deeply resonant that's gonna be? Yeah. It's it's pretty inspiring to think about. Yeah, no, the contrast couldn't be more clear. Um, and so I know we, you've got to run soon and I crowdsourced a few objections to Bernie from uh, friends on Facebook. And I just wanted to tackle a few of them with you and, and get your thoughts. Yeah, let's do it. So I, I think like, I'll try and do the ones that I think are like the most credible. Uh, so the one that I'm most concerned about is that his positions on trade might actually hurt the global poor and, you know, decrease stability or peace in, in, in the world. And, and the reason I say this is that like, I think he has a deeply protectionist instinct, which um, I understand. But like, you know, in 2016, he said that uh, we want fair trade. So we don't want to trade with countries that have roughly comparable uh, standards of living or wages to the United States and worker protections. And, and that's like <laughs> very, very few countries. Right. And I think he has not said that now. And I think like his 2016 campaign is quite different from his current campaign. Um, but I guess like what, what are your thoughts on on Bernie's trade policies and, and how familiar are you with the research on like the economic impact of those in, in the aggregate? Well, I'm not super familiar with the research on it, but what I do know is that Bernie Sanders represents our only chance at a, at a break with the neoliberal consensus on trade, which basically sees it as the United States' responsibility to sort of maintain the neoliberal economic world order, um, no matter you know sort of what the cost to poor people in the global South might be. Um, and I think that you know trade and the military are going to be sort of um, extremely co-implicated with each other. And broadly speaking, Bernie Sanders has demonstrated that his values when it comes to trade have to do with respecting um, poor people in the global South and trying to find solutions that are gonna work for poor people in the global South. And the same is true for his foreign policy. And again, he has far and away a more um, internationalist and solidaristic foreign policy stance than anybody else. So when it comes to what, you know, and, and then I'll add as a third thing that when it comes to climate, I think the same is true, that Bernie Sanders is able to think of the whole world in a way that basically nobody else who's run for president in my lifetime is able to. And I won't get into the specifics on trade. I'm sorry if that um, is a, a letdown to the person who asked a question, but it's really not my wheelhouse. But I will say that um, it's it's more about like to me uh, it's obvious that his general approach to giving a single shit about poor people of color and the global south is something that's highly uh, uh, idiosyncratic in the sort of modern political sphere right 
Yeah, yeah. I think I'll probably try and dedicate a whole episode to it. Um, the, the way I sort of think about it is that free trade without labor protections, environmental protections, is just mm-hmm. a race to the bottom. And you'll just get right. uh, capital moving and people cannot. And it'll just go to whichever country is offering the cheapest wages and can produce a thing. And so if you have... I, trade itself is is good, right? Like it binds countries together and like the fact that the US and China trade so much makes it far less likely that we're going to go to war. Um, but you want it to be that like the, the countries we're trading with protect their workers and care about the environment. And the United States has the biggest global market, right? So we can kind of dictate terms to that effect. And, and Bernie's talked about right. that. And I think if the ideal position is somewhere far to the left of where things are now, only Bernie will really push us in that direction. I think that's, I think that's correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, here's a big one. He's, he's too old. Bernie had a heart attack. He's 78 <laughs> years old, I believe. Um, his throat is a little sore. It seems that a lot of the times he's talking, uh, does this concern you at all? Well, I mean, the main thing when I'm on the doors, when I want to talk to people about like when I'm by that, I mean, when I'm canvassing for Bernie, mm-hmm. that comes up a lot. I mean, that's really common. People say he's too old. I mean, they've, they've heard that he's, that he's too old. They've heard other people say he's too old. And so they don't actually know how old he is or how old is too old. They just have a general impression that he's too old. So I um, ask them how old they think Joe Biden is or how much younger uh, they think Joe Biden is. And usually they say like somewhere between like five and 10 years. Uh, No, Joe Biden is one year younger than Bernie Sanders. We basically have to have the conversation about the way that the mainstream media has uh, very intentionally portrayed him as a feeble, crazy old man. Crazy Bernie. Um, Another crazy Bernie. And I also, you know, one thing that's kind of useful when we're having this conversation is um, to ask them how tall they think he is. <laughs> and there are people are like, uh, I don't know, he's like five, five or something. And I'm like, yeah, he's like six feet tall. Like you don't know that, do you? Right. Like I think that um, that usually helps get people out of the mind, out of the mindset that sort of what you see is what you get on in mainstream media. And then of course we have conversations about, have you seen him playing basketball and baseball? This guy's extremely fit. And then I tell them my personal story, which is that I attempted to follow Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail for like three stops. And I was really fucking exhausted by the end of it. And I cannot believe that he keeps up that schedule. He's clearly extraordinarily fit. And then the most important thing is that he's extremely, um, mentally fit. I mean, it's very clear that he's not like slowing down in the brain region, like some other people we might mention by name, (laughs) including Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I mean, Bernie Sanders does not have that problem. As for his heart, look, I have family members who've gotten stints put in. Your problems get easier after the stents are put in. It's like, you know, you had a heart attack because you your um, arteries were blocked. And then they did this thing with modern medicine where they unblocked your arteries. So, you know, that's great. Good for you. Now you're probably not going to have another heart attack for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, I guess this is one that I don't want to be true, but I, you know, might be is that the policies like a wealth tax, for example, might just not have the intended effect, right? Like you, I think Bernie Sanders has the best intentions of anybody in politics in the United States. Um, but then there's the realistic consequences of like pursuing a, a given policy and things like capital flight, um, are, are real concerns, like where rich people just like park their money overseas. Um, mm-hmm. And so I guess like in the context of a wealth tax or some other like soak the rich policy, uh, could you see these kind of backfiring and having like a smaller tax base that Bernie could use to fi- finance his uh, programs? Uh, yeah, definitely. There's That's not a reason not to pursue them. 
and you know we have to pursue them but and when and when the rich people take their ball and say we're going to go play elsewhere then we use that as an opportunity to at the very least point at them and say look what they're doing this is how little they care about our society and this is why we have to build a different kind of society that's predicated on entirely dif- different principles right yeah. um, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that it's not going to be difficult in the short term um, there are some things that a president can do to mitigate the potential harm that capitalists can do to an economy if they decide that they don't want to, they don't like the rules that are being implemented and they go somewhere else. Um, Capital controls is one of them. And capital controls basically means like we have laws that say that you just can't like pick up and move and or certainly you can't pick up and move without like adequate compensation. And the compensation would be enough to deter them from moving to begin with, because as we know, these companies are really making decisions reflexively based on their bottom line. Right. Um, And so that's the main, that's the main one. And then of course you could have like, you know, rules about offshore banking and various, you know, um, like uh, regulatory apparatuses that perhaps, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren could head up. I could see her doing a phenomenal job. Right. Like there's, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that you can do, but at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, the truth is that capitalism is beautifully designed to automatically punish, to use the state to to automatically punish the state when the state strays too far mm-hmm. from the wishes and interests of the capitalist class, because just by being prudent managers of their own profit margins. Um, corporations don't have to sit, CEOs don't have to sit in a smoke filled room with each other and decide, look, let's just, let's boycott, you know, Bernie Sanders is America. They're going to make individual decisions to go somewhere else. Um, and each one of them is going to do that. And then you're going to basically have see, you know, cap, capital, capital disinvestment or capital flight is going to be a pattern that occurs. Now I want to say, I'm saying that, and maybe some of your listeners are like, she, see, she just said it. Why would we want to have a Bernie Sanders presidency if that's the case? Well, the main things are this one, the United States is actually a market that it would actually be really stupid for the world's capitalists to completely ignore. So it's not like other places where they're just going to like up and abandon it and literally forget about it. I mean, it's just not going to happen in the United States. We are the beating heart of global capitalism. So within the course of a single presidential administration, you're not going to see so much capital disinvestment that it's actually going to like tank the American economy in a way that's completely disastrous or ruinous or whatever. And the other thing is this, if what I just said sounds bad to you, then the answer isn't, oh, well, then let's not do Bernie Sanders' thing because that might be bad. It's like, let's fight for a different kind of society where a very, very small minority of rich people is literally holding our democratic system hostage with the threat of tanking the economy for millions of people as punishment for trying to have things like healthcare and education and housing. So we do have to fight to build democratic socialism, right? And the only way to fight to win and build democratic socialism is by actually fighting for it. You can't just sit around and, you know, cross your legs and sort of wait for the right time. You have to get out there and get your hands dirty and know that you're going to experience setbacks. And it's not going to be an even linear process. It's going to be extraordinarily messy. Bad things are going to happen and you're going to be blamed for them. And then you have to rise to the occasion and make your case that, in fact, you are not to blame. The other people are to blame. And through that process, which has to be repeated over and over and over again, that's how you build consciousness in people, class consciousness, and the ability to envision a different kind of world where the capitalists don't get to take their ball and go home and ruin everybody else's life just so that they can keep staying really, really rich. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think 
jumping a little bit back into the electability and, and kind of the theory of change behind Bernie, um, we had at one point class politics, right? At least the Democratic Party was a party of the working people. The Republican Party was a party of the rich people. And this kind of broke down. This broke down over, you know, the 60s, 70s as politics kind of repolarized along the lines of education and became more about cultural signifiers. And if you have the working class on your side, there's just way more working class people in this country than there are wealthy people, uh, just by definition. That's kind of always how it is. Uh, but right now they're split on these kind of like, not meaningless, but but less substantive cultural issues. And they're just ruthlessly exploited by the Republican Party, especially to kind of win people over against their own interests. And the Democrats historically just haven't been able to counter it because Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, these are clearly in the pocket of rich people as well. And they're not clearly for the working class. The way that I tend to describe it is this. You have... Well, a former speechwriter for some Republican president, sorry, I don't actually know who, um, described the Democratic Party as uh, the world's second most enthusiastic party after, uh, world's second most enthusiastic capitalist party after the Republicans. (laughs) So um, this is the issue that we're facing is that we have in the United States a capitalist class that is more or less evenly divided between the Democrats and the Republicans along industry lines. So, you know, healthcare and like entertainment and tech are like in the Democrats corner. Mm -hmm. And then in in the Republicans corner, you have actually finance is kind of split, but you know, finance and, and real and real estate and oil and gas and things like, you know, the, the defense industries and things like that are in the Republicans corner. So you have a bifurcated capitalist class and then beneath them also split into two categories is a bifurcated working class split along cultural lines, along lines of race and geography and just like more squishier cultural signifiers that are often related to those, those two. Um, and that is a perfect situation for the capitalist class. They love it. This is ideal. They don't have to worry about anything, right? Because yeah. they've they've managed to convince everybody that there are two different parties that represent two different things, and they've like sorted themselves off into separate sides, and um, and the working class is just split sort of evenly down the middle, and therefore unable to unify and actually take on the capitalist class interests that are at the helm of the entire thing. Um, so we do need eventually a class realignment in American politics in order to break out of the status quo, in order to stop the trend at present, which is a disastrous one, which is the massive yawning, growing chasm of inequality that's also leading us toward ever more frequent crisis points, right? Like we need to break this trend. And the way to do it is that we need some kind of class realignment in American politics, where at the very least most of the working class people have like a sense of shared identity and like a sense of class consciousness and and a a feeling that they have to advocate for themselves against the capitalist class who's their enemy instead of just like sharing a party with their separate little capitalist class mascots right yeah Yeah. uh so megan i know you've got to run but i also know you have a book coming out uh so could you just tell us about that yeah i do have to run it's a shame i could talk about this forever (laughs) but um 
<laughs> my book is is co-written with Micah Utrecht, who is a an editor at Jacobin Magazine, where I am a writer. And the book is called Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. And especially if you were interested in that conversation that we were having about, you know, the capitalist class holding our system hostage with the threat of capital flight and capital disinvestment and how socialists have historically navigated um, contradictions like that. If those are the kinds of questions that are really interesting to you, I think that you should consider picking up the book because in we tried to make it extremely accessible and it's, it's written for people who are really excited about Bernie Sanders right now, especially people who are like experiencing some kind of political awakening or transformation of their own to get introduced to uh, like some slightly higher level concepts in socialist theory in a way that's not alienating or sectarian or weird. So hopefully you'll like it. It's called Bigger Than Bernie. It's out from Verso in April of 2020. Well, I look forward to reading it and uh, hopefully we can talk about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be back. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.